Okay, this morning we are launching into a kind of a, kind of a mini series, a, a, a part of our year-long campaign, uh, which is the Year of Biblical Literacy, where we are attempting to become a people who are more biblically literate. And and so we've reached the point where we're going to be looking at a section of the Bible, uh, often called the Prophets. And particularly, we're going to be looking at the prophet Isaiah. Um, after this series, we're going to go uh, to the book of Job and uh, look at some of the wisdom literature in the scriptures. Uh, and then we're going to be in the book of Esther uh, and then the book of Daniel, uh, which will take us right to the end of the summer. And then when we come back in September, we're going to be in the New Testament. And, and so that's the kind of trajectory uh, that we're on. As we've um, been journeying uh, through this year of biblical literacy, we've been trying to paint a picture of the kind of the big theme of the Bible. We've been trying to capture God's big story. Uh, that God's story is a story that starts with uh, creation uh, and fall um, and, and, and rebellion, but also a story of, uh, of, of um, redemption and, and the renewal and restoration of all things. And so we've been unpacking that story. Uh, and Anya did a great job uh, last week just summarising that and bringing that all together. And so as we step into this next uh, season for the summer, we're going to slow things down a bit. Our pacing is going to be a bit slower. And we're going to look at some different elements of the Old Testament. Uh, and the first of those, obviously, is the prophets. Um, and so what, what, what we begin to see as we look at the prophets is that we, we begin to see that um, God... Um, God is choosing to express how he feels. That's essentially what we pick up as we look through uh, the story of the prophets, that God is making that choice to express his feelings. And so I guess a question we could ask uh, right at the start of this is, what, what is a prophet? What do we hear when we hear that word, prophet? We might think a prophet is um, someone who predicts the future, you know, some sort of divine fortune teller, uh, someone who foretells events that are, are in the distant future that are yet to happen. That might be one way that we understand that word prophet. Um, some of us might consider a prophet as some kind of social reformer, like a, a Martin Luther King figure, someone who changes society by speaking prophetically into injustice um, and, and poverty in our world. Someone, and, and, and actually, that kind of conveys the heart of God, doesn't it? That God is a God who speaks against injustice. Or we might think of a prophet um, as a kind of herald, a messenger, someone sent to announce something. Maybe when we think about the, the prophetic writings that that um, herald the coming of Jesus. There's this kind of prophetic announcement that takes place. The Messiah is coming. Now, all of those ideas of a prophet, um, they're all kind of true, um, but not totally true. They, they, kind of, they all kind of capture what a prophet in the Old Testament did, but just, just not all of it. You see, a, a prophet in the Old Testament 
was, was really an intermediary between, between God and man. That, that, that ultimately anybody who was called a prophet with a, a capital P uh, in the Old Testament was, was really someone who spoke on behalf of God. That their words were God's words. That the, what they said was considered to be God speaking. Um, but in the midst of all of that, um, prophets were fairly peculiar people. Uh, they were perhaps slightly socially awkward. Um, if they were around today, we might put them on a spectrum. Um, they um, often um, went against the grain. You know, they often um, made people feel uncomfortable from time to time. Um, one Jewish philosopher, he said this. He said, the prophet was an individual who said no to his society, condemning its habits and assumptions, its complacency, its waywardness and syncretism. His, his fundamental objective was to reconcile God to man. You see, that's what the prophets do. They, they are ultimately trying to bring God and man back together, trying to draw humanity back to God. But because the prophets were a little bit odd and a little bit peculiar, they can sometimes, when we read them, feel a little bit hard to understand. Uh, Martin Luther, not the activist, the other one, okay, the reformer, he, he said this about the prophets. He said, they have an odd way of talking, like people uh, who, instead of proceeding in an ordinary manner, manner, they ramble off from one thing to the next, so that you cannot make head nor tail of what they're getting at. So that's what uh, you know, a reformer had to say about the prophets, what the prophets were like. So when we read the Old Testament prophets, it can feel like things are all over the place. That, um, that they, they don't, it doesn't always seem to make sense. You know, one minute there's doom and gloom, and then the next minute they're speaking hope. You know, we, we see this as we go through all the prophets and all the prophetic books, that, that they speak one way whilst the people are being warned of exile. And then when they're taken into exile, they speak a completely different way. And part of the reason why the prophets are kind of hard to read is that it, they're not authors of books. Okay, they're not writing a, a linear story. Prophets are a bit like poets. Uh, now, we, we kind of lose that in the translation. You know, translating the scriptures to English, we lose some of that poeticness that's going on. But essentially, in the Hebrew, um, the, the, what, the, what the prophets are saying, it's, it's kind of poetical. And so it's not a story, um, it's not a story in the kind of linear way that we tell stories. Um, they're more like anthologies. They're, they're a bit like a, a Quentin Tarantino film, if any of you get that reference. You know, Quentin Tarantino films, they don't go in a particular order. Sometimes they go backwards, sometimes the end is in the middle, and all of that. Um, and, and, and that's what the prophetic writings are like sometimes. They're more, more of an anthology than a story. And, and because of that, 
Um, when we read it, we can sometimes find it hard to place where this is going on. We're kind of hard to attach the narrative to it, simply, simply because of the way it's written. So that's, that, that's all as a kind of an introduction to the next couple of weeks. We're going to be looking at some different things. So, you know, one of, one of the disclaimers I want to give you this morning is that, um, you know, our, one of our goals is when you come to church is that you leave feeling better than when you arrived. I can't guarantee that this morning. Um, I don't know if you saw the look of people in the first service, um, but... Um, Today isn't a cheery subject. The, the title of my talk is The Pain and Anger of God. And so um, it isn't one of those mornings where you're going to write a quote down and turn it into a fridge magnet and stick it on your fridge. Okay, It's, it's not one of those mornings. Actually, this is a, a morning to be reflective on, on what the scriptures have to say. You know, and someone was asking me in the first service, like, why do we do that? And I said, well, we, you know, we want to be a people who preach the whole counsel of God's word. Even the hard bits, even the bits that we have to grapple with, even the bits that kind of don't make sense, the, the bits that make us feel uncomfortable, we're going to go for them too. And so if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 1. I, I purposely not put them on the slides this morning, so you can follow along in your Bibles. We're not going to get to read the whole of chapter 1 this morning, but we might have a crack at um, the first few verses. And it says this, it says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reign of Uzzah, Jotham, Ezekiah, king of Judah. And so uh, there's kind of, like a his, it kind of like a historical time stamp on this, um, and, and it kind of dates the scene. And so we're in a period of history where the nation of Israel have been divided into two. Okay, so um, the, the ten tribes of Israel have moved to the north, and, then, uh, and they're often referred to as Israel. This is where it kind of gets a bit confusing. Um, and they are also already in exile. They've been captured by the, the Syrians, um, so in the north. And then we have Judah and the tribe of Benjamin down in the south. And, and really, the book of Isaiah starts in a period where, where God is kind of this last ditch attempt to turn the people of Judah around, to get them to come back to him uh, so they can avoid exile like the northern tribe. And so it says this, it says, Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox know its master, the donkey its owner's manager. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spawned the Holy One of Israel and then turned their backs on him. 
So it's not the cheeriest passage of scriptures. You know, um, how many of us, when we think, you know what, I've got a bit of time on my hands, I'm going to read the Bible, I think I will read the first few chapters of Isaiah. Uh, we, we, we don't go there, do we? Because it's kind of, it's kind of hard. We struggle to understand. And, and one of the reasons why we struggle to understand what this what writing like this is saying is because we don't fully understand the emotion of what's going on. And the fact that in this moment, God is being emotional. You know, God is an emotional being, isn't he? You know, we see in Jesus, who embodies the fullness of who God is, we see in Jesus this this God-man who wept, who mourned, he was, he was called a man of many sorrows. That God is a God who feels emotion. And we, and we begin to see, as we read through the prophets, we begin to see this raw emotion as the prophets go on. You see, God is sorrowful. God is in pain. And he's in pain because his children have gone astray. You know, um, and, the, and, and Isaiah captures this in his poetry. He, he says this, he says, I've reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. They've turned their back on me. And we begin to hear God's pain and anguish. We begin to hear how he feels about what they've done. And we see throughout the Old Testament prophets, there's essentially three things. And conversely, we also see it in this chapter as well, um, that are, that's going on, what the, the prophets are trying to address in the people. The first issue at play is, is the breaking down of the covenant relationship that God has uh, with Israel. That, that God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing and I want you to, you know, I want you to fulfil that calling. And we know, we know they didn't. The the, the second thing we see the prophets uh, addressing is is this injustice of the marginalised. That the, the, there's this injustice taking place. And then the third thing, and we we won't get there today, is is this idea that the people have stepped into idolatry. And so repeatedly, as we read through the book of the prophets we see these issues rise over and over again. And so in verse 4, we see the people, they've turned their backs on God. They, uh, they've turned their back on the promise, the, the vow that they've made with God, the covenant relationship. Now, as we said a few weeks ago, covenant isn't something that we talk about much in our culture. Uh, the nearest thing we have to covenant would be marriage, um, uh, um, but actually, co- we don't really do covenants. Most of our relationships, most of our business dealings, all those things are contractual, aren't they? We're not really a covenant-making people. But we see God made a covenant with his people 
on a few different occasions. Uh, and, and essentially, a covenant is an agreement made between two parties. We see the covenant he makes with Abraham. Um, but only, the only difference was in that moment, God puts, puts Abraham to sleep and he takes the covenant himself. He, he, he says, no, this is, this is too good to be messed up. I'm going to do the covenant making. Uh, but then we see in, on, in Exodus 19, uh, in Mount Sinai, where God, where God says to the people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he, he shows them how to live under this covenant. He gives them the, the Ten Commandments and all of those sorts of things. And God is the faithful party. He's the one who remains faithful to the covenant, yet the people turn their backs on him. Now, there are two ways uh, that the scriptures often describe, two metaphors for what that covenant relationship is like. One is the one that we've already seen about a father and his children, and his children rebelling and turning against him. Um, But the other metaphor that the Bible uses, and, and, and I think really captures the brokenness of God, is the metaphor of marriage. One of the ways, one of the places where we see this picture is in the book of Hosea. And if you're in your read scripture plan, you should have read Hosea this week. Is that right? Uh, everyone in the first service did, just to make you all feel bad. <laughs> Clearly, if you come to the first service, you are up to date with the year of biblical literacy. <laughs> Um, if you are up today, you should be in Hosea. And um, we see in the story of Hosea that God, God calls the prophet to represent him as a husband. And, and, and he calls him to marry a woman of reputation who represents Israel. And, and, this, and this picture of marriage is created with a good and faithful husband, yet a wife who cheats. He says this in the opening verses. He says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like, the, like an adulterous wife, the land, meaning, the, meaning Israel, is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And you see, God knows what it's like to be cheated on. God knows what it's like to be betrayed. God God knows what it's like to be hurt. Because he's the one who bound himself to an unfaithful wife. He's the one who bound himself to a promiscuous wife, who, who goes and gets pregnant with another man. And he says to Hosea, he says, I want you to take her back, and I want you to love her and cherish her and clean her, because that's what I do to my people. They constantly betray me. They constantly turn their back on me. And yet, I take them back. And you see, the reality of the emotion and pain and the suffering of God as his people uh, make these decisions. It's cheery, isn't it? But it goes on. In verse 7, it says, Your country is desolate. Your city is burnt with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid to waste as when overthrown by strangers. 
daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field. I'm not sure what that is. I have Star Wars references in my mind when it says a hut in a cucumber field. Um, But if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. Um, um, Yeah, where was I? A hut in a cucumber field. Like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of fat and fattened animals. I have, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked you this? Who has asked this of you? This, tramp, this trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Uh, new moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts, and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. I told you this is cheery stuff, okay? This is, it doesn't get any better, just so you know. And so firstly, we see the pain of God. We see the the pain of God like a husband to an unfaithful, cheating wife, where this covenant relationship has been broken down. But the the second thing we see is the anger of God, that God is angry because of injustice, injustice that is exhibited in a form of a religion that is driven by hypocrisy. See, Judah are rebelling against God. And the life that he's given them. You know, when, when God gave, when he instituted the law, he said, this is how to live. This is how I want you to do society. And yet, there they are, living their own way, doing their own thing. And then they come to the temple and they religiously make their sacrifices, their, their burnt offerings, hoping that God will bless them. You know, one of the consistent things about human beings is that we're not that different from each other. don't know if you've noticed that. We're not that different, particularly in nature. We all like to live life our own way. We all like to get our own way. We like to do our own things. We like to commit ourselves to the things that we want to be committed to. We, we like to give ourselves to the things that make us feel good. That we, we live in a, a society of hedonism, don't we? Where it's just, it's about me feeling good and nothing else matters. You know, the, the pursuit of happiness, the, the American dream. It's even true here. 
But at the same time, we can live life like that. We can then just, we show up here on Sundays and we, we fulfill our religious duty. Maybe we sing a little. Maybe we um, raise our hands in that dramatic moment where the lead guitar solo kicks in. Maybe we, uh, we take a moment to pray the right prayers. Maybe we give an amen at the right time. And we do all of that hoping that somehow God will bless us. But the issue is, is that God sees through us. He sees through the facade. This is what he says in verse 13. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your, your incense is detestable to me. In other words, your worship is horrible. I hate it. Your new moon, Sabbaths and convocations, whatever they are, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Whenever you get together, it just really annoys me. You see, God sees through our religion. God sees through us faking it. He knows when we're just going through the motions. But why would God be so strong? After all, he's the one who's instituted all these things. He's the one who came up with a sacrificial system. He's the one who told them to burn these animals and do all these different things. Why would he be saying this is horrible? Well, the answer is in verse 15. He said, your hands are full of blood. Your hands are full of blood. And this is a bit of a double entendre. This is, their hands are full of blood because they keep sacrificing, because they keep sinning. Okay, their hands are full of blood. But their hands are also full of blood because of injustice, because of their neglect for the poor, because um, they haven't looked after those who have been oppressed. It says this in verse 16, wash and make yourself clean. Take, uh, take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And God is like, stop doing all that religious stuff. Stop it. Stop the hypocrisy and start to remember the needs of others. Start to remember the needs of those around you. In the book of Amos, the Amos the prophet, he speaks some similar words to the northern tribes. And he, and he, and he says this in Amos 5, 23. He says, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. You see, there's a thread throughout the scriptures. And it's this thread and this continual call for God's people to go back and care for the poor, 
to seek justice for the oppressed, to, to fight the cause of the fatherless, to care for the widows. We see it over and over again, don't we? Not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. But here's the thing, when we become self-obsessed, when we get trapped in just doing the right religious things, it's hard for us to see beyond our border fence. It's hard for us to, to see beyond ourselves. In, in verse 9 and 10, he compares, he compares the people to Sodom and Gomorrah. And, um, and, you know, many of us know the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, don't we? We, we know there's, there's, there's issues of morality and sexual impurity. But here's what Ezekiel says. He says in this, in his, Ezekiel 16 and verse 49, he says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. You know, in, the, in a church like ours, it's really easy for all of us to give ourselves a big, big pat on the back. Yeah, because we're, 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 we're one of the churches. You know, we, we've got a reputation for being one of the churches that, that cares for the poor. But the, issue, the problem is, is that we can be a church that cares for the poor and we can all pat ourselves on the back and say, aren't we doing a good job? And the majority of us can never touch the life of a single person who's poor or destitute or broken. You see, every week, hundreds of people walk in this building and they sit in the same chairs as you. Uh, and those people are people on the edge of society who are broken And you see, they're looking for hope. They're looking for comfort. They're, they're looking for people who can show them the way. But the problem is, is so often the church is caught up in its religious activity that we completely miss the needs of those around us. Now, we could say, what's, what relevance has this got to do with us, Steve? <laughs> After all, this is the Old Testament. Jesus has come. Everything's been made new. Mercy and just mercy flows and grace is, is abounding to me. Surely I don't need to feel bad. Surely I can feel bad for them, but I don't need to feel bad for me. And the, and the truth is, we, we get to the book of Isaiah through Jesus. Okay, we, we read this book through the lens of Jesus, and we're grateful for that. Yet despite our position, despite our vantage point, the warnings of the prophets still remain relevant. They still remain true. If you've got a Bible, why don't you flick over to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to finish by looking at that. Revelation chapter 3. This is, this is how we make that relevant to us. 
Revelation 3 and verse 14. It says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. In other words, these are the words of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. If you've got a red Bible, it's all red from here, okay? This is Jesus speaking. And he says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you don't realise that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. If there was ever a message from a prophet to the people of God in our day. It would be to a church that is tepid, a church that is bored, that's apathetic, overconfident in their own spiritual condition. In short, a church that is lukewarm. I guess another way we would say it is a church that is apathetic. And apathy is a funny thing, isn't it? it? It has the power to kill. That we can be apathetic about our apathy. But we so often miss it. Because we kind of often see apathy as the safe spot. It's the safe place to be. We think we're better off being halfway. At least it's a step in the right direction. So let's just, let's just camp here. Let's, let's just stop halfway. Let's just be lukewarm. But Jesus seems to disagree. For, for, for Jesus, apathy, and at least in the context of this passage, is, is, is worse. Apathy is worse than enmity to God. That, that Jesus is almost saying, I would rather you be my enemy than camp halfway. I'd rather you be, I'd rather be cold than camp halfway. You see, the apathy is what makes the church camp in the middle. Let's just camp in the middle ground. Let's, let's just stay here. Let's just be lukewarm. John Stott, the uh, Anglican theologian, he, he says this about Jesus' words to the Laodiceans. He says, it describes vividly 
the respectable, sentimental, normal, skin-deep religiosity, which is so widespread amongst the church today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath. And so how do we respond? How do we respond to Jesus' message that, hey guys, you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. This, is, this doesn't taste great. You know, there's something interesting about Laodicea. It was a, a center for irrigation. It was a place where water flowed. And people knew what lukewarm water was like. It's, it's kind of like, have you ever, have you ever been, um, you ever been on a, a really long walk or done exercise, as I often do, you can tell? Um, you know, and um, all you want to do is get home and have a bath. Yeah? So I'm just going to have a bath. A nice, hot bath. And you get in the bath and it's lukewarm. Kind of feels a bit naff, doesn't it? It's like there's nothing fulfilling about a lukewarm bath. Or or how many of us have like, you know, I'm just I'm just dying for a drink. it's, It's so hot and sunny. All I want is a nice, fresh, cold glass, a bit of water. And you pick up the glass. And it's been on the side for half an hour. And you sip it and you're like, yeah. And that's what Jesus is saying. That lukewarmness doesn't cut it. It it doesn't have the required effect. And so he says, I counsel you to buy uh, from me gold refined in the fire. So that you can become rich. Ask me to refine you. Ask me. Ask me to clothe you in white so that your shame, your nakedness will be covered up. Ask me to give you the ointment for you to see what's real. And so we suddenly see the warnings of the prophet in Isaiah are immensely relevant to us today. Because we're all part of the same human condition. We all rebel. We all are unfaithful. We all do things that break the heart of God. And so the question really is, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? And you know, you might leave today not feeling that cheery. I'm, I'm confident of that. <laughs> You'll need to come back next week for the cheery bit. But you might go away today thinking, okay, God, what is it I need to do? Where have I allowed my own religion to cause me to grow complacent? Where have, I, where have I like thought, you know what, I'm doing great. I tithe, I serve, I know how to worship Jesus. I've, I've signed up to three small groups this term. I'm doing great. But which one of those things are kind of getting in the way? Those religious activities. 
Which of those things have we we've chose to do that because it actually masks a bigger issue, a bigger issue in our hearts? Where is God calling us back to faithfulness? Where is God calling us back to be like a faithful wife to a loving and devoted husband? Where is God calling us back to take off the religious glasses and, 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 and work out and begin to see what it is he's doing in the world? Where he's at work? That we wouldn't ignore the plight of the oppressed and the broken just because we've got some songs to sing. But actually we would see the brokenness around us, that we would see the pain around us. You know, Jesus, he talks a lot about caring for widows and orphans. And, you know, who are the widows and orphans of our day? I, I think the widows and orphans are the, the single mums with fathers' kids who come here every Wednesday morning. They're our widows and orphans. They're the ones... Who are the broken? Who are the destitute? Who are the ones he's calling us to? Or maybe the question is, well, the reality is, is I've settled for, I've settled to camp halfway. I've settled to, I've, I've decided to just camp myself in the middle because it's safe here. It, it, it's safe. But actually that, that, that safety is robbing us of what God has for us what God wants to do next. 